Section 26 of Wildlife on a Norfolk Estuary by Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. East Coast Notes, Chapter 2 Some Fish Notes, Part 2 What Fishes and Birds Swallow. In December 1905, some interesting discussion arose in the Angler's News with reference to the identity of a fish taken at Folkestone. From its description, I at once decided it to be a Muller's topknot, Zeugopterus punctatus. After some handing backwards and forwards of sketches, my identification was accepted although the fish itself did not come into my hands the correspondence led to a discussion of other phases of fish life and what fishes swallow made some entertaining reading g g wrote as follows sirs with regard to mr patterson's recent letter with the above heading perhaps the enclosed may furnish an interesting line in the stomach of a blue shark captured off the firth of forth recently a boot and a stocking were found i think the subject of what fishes swallow very interesting following this was a letter from scarborough which read dear sirs as an angler naturalist I read with much interest the notes on uncommon fishes which appear in the Angler's News from time to time, and gain much useful information from them as to what fishes swallow. Some years ago I saw a guillemot which had been taken entire out of the stomach of a large cod, and more recently, on opening a sprag, as small cod are called here, of eight pounds, which I had caught at Cloughton Wyke, I found in its stomach an entire red wing, a member of the thrush family. The fish was caught in October, during which month the red wings are migrating from Scandinavia to Great Britain, and doubtless the example found had fallen exhausted during its long journey and had been picked up by the fish i have several times found stones in the stomachs of codfish an interesting discussion might be opened upon what seabirds swallow and it appears to me as an angler that our seabirds are receiving too much protection and are becoming far too numerous the quantity of fish destroyed by them being something enormous. A razor bill, which I shot some time ago, contained in its crop no fewer than 200 tiny whitings, about 170 of which I was able to distinguish separately, the remainder being crushed to pulp. Only a few days ago, I saw another bird of the same species struggling with a large fish, and after watching it overcome and swallow it, I shot the bird in order to see what had happened. I found the fish was a garfish, 
13 inches in length, the length of the bird, minus the feathers, being about 11 inches. The fish was bitten almost in two about the middle, and doubled upon itself, thus rendering the apparently impossible quite easy of accomplishment. I have seen a cormorant swallow a codling weighing three pounds, and one of these birds, which I kept for a few days alive, would eat six large herrings a day, and was never satisfied. He would fill himself until the last fish was left protruding from his overflowing gullet, and in about four hours was empty and hungry again. Signed, W.J.C., Fellow of the Zoological Society. January the 13th, 1906. From Folkestone followed another note. Dear Sirs, A short while back, Mr. Patterson asked as to what fish ate. Now, my experience has shown me that that depends mostly on the nature of the ground in which one catches one's fish. During the whiting season, and when sprats are also about, it is usual to find that the crop of your whiting is glutted with Clupea spratus. At other times, he appears to feed on anything which he can get hold of that is alive, and makes the young Brit, which in the spring of the year swim in our bay in myriads, pay a severe penalty for having been born alive. We all know that Mr. and Mrs. Whiting will also feed on the succulent lugworm. The pollock, the pike of the sea, is very much of the same taste, excepting that he prefers rag or madder to lugworm. Also, a very young cuttlefish is very much to his liking. Codfish appear to be very general also in their likes, more Catholic than either of the former, for I have found whiting, small pouts, crabs, and other shellfish dedons. On opening a nine-pound conger, I discovered a recently swallowed hard-shelled crab, at least four inches across his back. He had so recently swallowed it that except for a turn in his lateral formation, no doubt prepared first by Mr. Conger to suit the formation of his little Mary, he was practically intact. My reason for making a special point of this is that there has been much discussion amongst the cognoscenti up above as to the reason for the scarcity of shellfish, crustaceans, round our south coast being caused by the captures of large quantities of congers, between this port of Folkestone and the French coast, in consequence of which the cuttlefish and squid have increased in such numbers that they have kept down the increase of crabs and lobsters, to whom they are natural and deadly enemies. It is, of course, possible that my conger knew something of this. He looked a knowing old bird, and was trying what retaliation would affect. This is a question for our lords and masters of the upper house, 
whose opinion and verdict we look for. Signed, G.C. Walton, A.R.M. Jr., wrote, Sirs, one day my father and I were returning from a little fishing excursion at Cromford near Matlock Bath in Derbyshire. On reaching the well-known fish pond by the roadside, I threw into it a large dandelion which I had gathered in the Cromford meadows, and in a second a big chub came up and swallowed it, and several other chub did the same thing with other dandelions. It may be interesting to state that on the side of this pond there were several automatic machines from which, if you inserted a penny in the slot, you would receive some cheese to throw to the chub. One fact in particular I tried to ascertain during the correspondence, but there was no response. Had anyone ever detected the codfish devouring its own species? Whitings, I know, have no scruples in the matter of devouring any relative they can swallow, but in my experience, I never found a small codling in the stomach of a larger one. Many a fine cod, too, have I seen dissected, and among the many queer things found were huge masses of whelk's egg cases. But these had never been engulfed by the cod itself, but had been crammed into its maw by wily fishermen, in order to give that plump appearance so desirable in freshly caught cods. A friend of mine once took from a cod's stomach a fisherman's pocket knife, and from the maw of another a good-sized turnip. Lesser Forkbeard and Montague's Sucker The study of our British fishers will, I fear, never be really popular except with those who do business in the deep. It may be that the uncertainty of meeting with the fishers and the difficulty of watching their habits, as may ornithologists in the case of bird life, tend to damp enthusiasm, although I feel convinced that were a beginning made intelligently and determinedly, many who now ignore the subject, although perhaps living in localities favourable for ichthyological pursuits, would find it interesting and pleasing. I myself like it for the difficulties that have to be surmounted, and the amount of speculation and deduction to be drawn from casual happenings in no way lessens my interest. Every naturalist has at least some small chance of adding to our store of knowledge, and if the making of local lists and working out the faunas of localities be too great a task, at least the recording of rare species, in any branch of natural science, should be esteemed a duty. The above reflections are suggested by a note I received in March 1906, which dealt with the finding of a rare Yarmouth fish, the occurrence of which I did not record in my list of species. J.T.F. wrote, I am now reading with much interest your Nature in Eastern Norfolk. 
i know and remember most of the scenes which you describe and enjoy their being recalled i recall one of my natural history observations this relates to a fish the lesser forkbeard raniceps trifocatus i used occasionally to watch the draw nets emptied on the beach and in passing where one had recently been drawn to stop and examine the fish which had been rejected on a day in january eighteen sixty one my brother now colonel r f and i came upon a few of these rejected fish south of the wellington pier we selected one which was strange to us and took it home and through yarrell second edition we established it as the lesser forkbeard i preserved it in spirit and kept it here for about forty years and then presented it to the norwich museum where it may now be seen i think its length is about eight inches yarrell believed that no example had been obtained elsewhere than the cornish coast except one at berwick-on-tweed and it seems that mine may probably be the earliest recorded norfolk example or perhaps the second for the whole east coast though no doubt it is only the capture of this fish which is of such extreme rarity and its existence is more common than any evidence would lead us to suppose i should observe that the fish was still living when i picked it up the only other fish of the least interest which i chanced to discover in the same way was montague's sucker too which i found on the beach on another similar occasion i saw the net drawn with them they were clearly identified and preserved but i do not know where they are now now had these montague suckers been properly recorded my claim to being the first observer to add the species to the yarmouth list would have been superseded with the exception of these two whose history has now turned up in an unexpected fashion i knew of no others taken off this coast until the spring of nineteen o four a period of over forty years this makes my contention good when i say that the records of any rare species are interesting and useful as adding to our store of knowledge the montague sucker liparis montagui is referred to by dr lowe in a transcript from the norfolk and norwich naturalist society as common in the norfolk estuary he says i have frequently taken this which is much more common here than the preceding liparis vulgaris in the estuary and several times in the river opposite lynn in fresh water at low tide in may 1906 it came to hand from the yarmouth shrimp boats in sufficient numbers for me to believe it by no means uncommon off this coast some i saw contained spawn which was proportionately of a very large size the lesser forkbeard has been recorded several times for the norfolk estuary 
by Mr. Day. Couch refers to one obtained by a Mr. Gatty, a fellow of the Linnean Society at Yarmouth, but gives no date of its occurrence. It would seem strange that, between that example and the one mentioned by J.T.F., as taken in 1861, none should be recorded until 1891, in which year I obtained two, taken in shrimp nets, while a third was washed up after a gale in November 1902. Day speaks of it as apparently solitary and probably a wanderer, and, quoting Ogilby, states that the curious fact of this fish being generally washed ashore dead would seem to prove that it lives at the bottom in very deep water, where neither nets nor lines can be used, and where it is perhaps not so rare as is supposed. It would be interesting to know at what depth the influence of a storm are felt, and to know why this deep-sea species should be subject to these influences. The fact of two being taken in shrimp nets proves that it occasionally wanders into shallow waters. Altogether, the inferences to be drawn from the Forkbeard's appearances are interesting, to say the least of them, and without putting two and two together to make four, its habits might be left in doubt altogether. There is much yet to be learnt of the comings and goings of many fishes. Souls numerous. The sole appears to come into the roadstead fairly regularly in June and July. A more than usual quantity of fair-sized fish were met with in 1906. A dozen of my shrimper friends at the latter part of June substituted small trawls for their ordinary shrimp dredgers and made remunerative hauls. I saw 56 pairs of soles, some of them fine ones, in a shrimp shop on July the 5th, the combined catch of two boats using 16-foot beam trawls. Some of these fishers fish hard. They crowd on all sail and throw out a drag, a sail held by a pole and four guy ropes, which the tide fills like a huge bag, pulling the boat along from below in addition to the sails above. The soles, so far as I can ascertain, inshore for lugworms and take the Nereidae freely although showing little or no food in their stomachs when dissected. Most of the shrimpers who retain their dredgers meet with few souls. Lucky Bob, who occasionally trawls on Braden, assured me that he took there on July the 4th no less than 32 pairs of souls. His largest fish measured 22 inches. Jari, the watcher, Recorded one eighteen inches long. Shoals of grey mullet. The movements of the grey mullet, if the statements of old Bradeners may be relied on, 
were at one time well ordered and exceedingly regular while the capture of this fish was a remunerative part of the men's employment today the grey mullets movements are capricious and there can be no doubt that the few stragglers which come to this estuary keep chiefly to the channel or the edges of the flats bordering on it i have been given to understand that great numbers used to go round the river to alton where they would congregate at one of the locks probably to feed on the palimon variands which would be found there in quantities and where one of the lock keepers kept by him a homemade spear with which now and again he secured one or more of them huge numbers appear to put in on the south coasts and some correspondence on the subject to which i contributed may be worth preserving in the angler's news of february the twenty fourth nineteen o six appeared the following a great haul of grey mullet selcombe was on monday all agog with excitement owing to the arrival of enormous numbers of grey mullet the fishermen at once went after them and mr william cove writes me that his net accounted for four and a half hundred weight of fish which averaged from two pounds to three pounds writing on tuesday he adds now there is another shoal of about two tons which we are trying to get it would be interesting to know what caused the sudden appearance of these immense shoals of mullet here were they attracted by food driven in by large predatory fish or gales or do mullets spawn hereabouts at yarmouth the belief seems to have been that they came up river like the smelts to spawn but seeing that this species spawns in the winter months as rather curtly referred to by mr day its visits here must certainly have been for the sake of the food found on Braden, the alva lactuca and the small hydrobea clustering upon it and not for spawning the probability is that it was for spawning purposes this great shoal came to our southern coasts i replied to this note and gave an account of the habits of the species so far as i had observed them in this neighbourhood a note followed from mr cove the fisherman referred to to the effect that they the mullet are chased the same as the hounds after the hare by porpoises we think that the mullet feed on the insects crustacea which are among the seaweed but we cannot tell exactly the shoal of about two tons which i mentioned last week is still in view but are driven about by the porpoises and we cannot catch them yet g c continuing the correspondence wrote i think the reason that the grey mullet has extended their visit to the devonshire coast is the mildness of the past winter i have a strong conviction that this fish attaches itself to locality 
when the Mabel Grace was making the passage daily between this port of Folkestone and Boulogne, a school of mullet was invariably to be seen disporting round about her, more especially when the warm water was emptied from the condensers, and any that were caught on Pollack tackle from the pierhead were always taken shortly after she had left the harbour which would indicate that they had followed her to beyond the pierhead and were taken on the return journey to within the shelter of the harbour pier extension to me the following of a steamer seems rather curious unless the mullet did so for the sake of the grease that would naturally drain into the sea from such a craft mr day speaks of it as delighting in shallow water during the warmer weather snatching at any oily substance that may chance to be floating about when sailing vessels coming in after long voyages were not so rare in yarmouth harbour as they are to-day the barnacles and other marine creatures which were often very much in evidence on their bottoms would occasionally lure unexpected fishes into the harbour that grey mullet will eat larger morsels is proved by one being taken with a mussel and another as recently as november nineteen o six on a hook baited with lugworm although in each case i believe the fish was foul hooked the barb of the hook having entered the soft lips of its small mouth without the hole being taken the grey mullet's fondness for small mollusca is proved by Couch's list of shells, quoted from Thompson in his Natural History of Ireland, which includes Mytila sedulis, Modiola papuana, small examples, Littorina retusa, Rissoa labiosa, Rissoa parva, etc., salmon trout during the latter part of september nineteen o six the coast was visited by an unusual number of salmon trout the longshore fishermen at winterton a favourite resort occasionally of the species bringing some excellent catches to the fish wharf in two days as many as ten stones were brought up the larger fish realising a shilling a pound. Mr. R. Beezer, fish merchant, informed me that the catches were much greater than usual. He himself purchased over £1,000 of trout, dispatching most of them to London. One fine example weighed 16 and a quarter pounds. Several between that weight and 12 pounds were amongst them. The greatest number was landed on September the 29th, the season closing on October the 2nd. The Pearl Sides The finding of an example of the Pearl Sides, Morolycus penantii, stranded up river nearly four miles from the harbour mouth by my friend Mr. J. E. Knights, is worthy of being recorded. An unusually high tide overflowed the banks of the River Bure at several weak spots, not far from the town. 
near the new railway bridge spanning the river a considerable inrush of water filled the adjoining ditches coming in like a mountain torrent some days after mr knights visited the spot and found an example of this silvery little creature lying on the bank at the edge of a gully formed by the torrent of water that had forced its way through the fish was one and three-quarter inches in length i saw it with its two rows of abdominal spots still vividly coloured although it was somewhat shrivelled i may be wrong but i am strongly inclined to believe that this species allied as it is to the salmonidae ascends rivers in spring for the purpose of spawning all the occurrences i have noted for this neighbourhood were between february the twenty fourth and april the first owing to its diminutive size it is seldom netted for the mesh must be fine indeed that stays its progress although as in the case of the first one which i discovered at the harbour mouth it had come ashore entangled in the abundant weeds clogging a net a deep sea ling when passing a fishmonger's on november the seventh nineteen o six i observed a big-eyed attenuated-looking ling i remarked to the fishmonger on its distinctive appearance and he laughingly replied yes that's one of them old deep-sea customers which not only proved to me that he was fairly conversant with the fish but also suggested at once the locality from which it was taken on turning up an old copy of the field i was delighted to come across an article on deep sea fishers in the market by j t cunningham and at once saw the similarity of a drawing of the fish to the example i had recognised mr cunningham's remarks on it are as follow mulva elongata otto this is a species of ling characterised by the slender form the elongation of the pelvic fin which extends beyond the pectoral and the shortness of the first dorsal the lower jaw is longer than the upper the colour is ashy grey on the back silvery on the sides the specimen i have examined is thirty-one inches long but the fish is probably often larger though it does not reach so large a size as the common ling this species closely resembles a northern deep-sea species of ling the mulva abyssorum of nilsson mulva birklange of wellborm the latter occurs at depths beyond one hundred fathoms on the coast of norway and was discussed a few years ago by mr holt who obtained specimens from the lining grounds of Faroe, and from iceland where it is taken both by line and trawl the chief differences between mulva elongata for which mr garstang suggests the english name silverling and mulva birklange are that the first dorsal fin is shorter in the former and that the pelvic fin is longer 
than the pectoral. Monsieur Adolphe Cligny of the station Aquicole of Boulogne, who has published a memoir on the deep-sea fishes obtained by French trawlers on these grounds, considers Elongata as merely a variety of Birklange, but he omits from his discussion the fact that in the former the pelvic or ventral is longer than the pectoral and not in the latter it is of little importance whether the forms are considered to be varieties or species there is no doubt that they can be definitely distinguished mulva elongata was until recently only known from the mediterranean but it has been recorded by portuguese observers from the coast of portugal there is no doubt that it is a good edible fish the example i saw was about thirty inches in length it did not long remain unnoticed by customers and its remainders were sold at night in a fried condition with many another species. End of section twenty six.